The commotion that day was incredible. Throughout the city, there was a wrestling because of what had happened. See, there was a guy that was lame from birth who all of a sudden was healed. Now, we know that he was lame because every day we saw him at the same place begging in the center, in, in the, in the center, center of the city. And he sat there every single day. We saw him every day of our life. And so we knew it, that it was a verifiable miracle that had taken place. See, there was a guy named John and Peter, and they were proclaiming a message, and they started to preach this message. And as they preached it, conviction fell on people. They started preaching a message saying that God came and that he was sent, he sent his son Jesus Christ, and his son Jesus Christ was killed and murdered by the people. But God raised him from the dead. And he says it's by the faith in Jesus that this man was healed. And as they began to proclaim this message of repent and believe, there was a conviction that fell upon me because he said, I had crucified him. How does he know that I crucified him? How does he know I was there? But deep within my heart, I looked in my soul and I realized, yes, I was. I was one of those people that got caught up in the moment. I said, crucify him, crucify him. I knew I had murdered him. I had gotten caught up, and yet at the end of the day, I felt so empty. And now this Peter, this John, they're proclaiming this message that I need to repent and believe and turn to God and enter into the renewing that God wanted. Renewal. Faith. I knew that I didn't have faith. I hadn't believed in God in a long time. I knew that I needed a renewal. I knew that there was something empty inside of me. I needed that with all of my heart. And for the very first time, I think there was something that happened to my ears and my eyes. It was like scales fell off, and all of a sudden, I could see clearly. This Jesus that they crucified... He did it for me. And it was on that day, it was on that day that I became a Christ follower. I was told that day that the numbers had increased from 3,000 people to 5,000 people. There was a movement of God that was going on in the city of Jerusalem that could not explain. There was a buzz of people talking about Jesus Christ and people were being changed and transformed. But boy, did this bother the religious leaders. The religious leaders are hearing this name of Jesus being proclaimed. And of course, they had Peter and John. They, they had them arrested. They put them overnight in a cell. And boy, the next day, it drew out the big guns. Annas, who was the previous high priest, and Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, they came and they came to question Peter and John. And they said, by what name and by what power are you saying these things? Now I'm thinking to myself, be careful, Peter, be careful, John. It's a trap, it's a trap. But they rose above it. You know, they spoke in such a way that you could just tell they weren't from men. 
They were from God. They rose way above these high priests. And they simply looked at him and said, The Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified and has risen again, it is by him that this man stands healed today. I couldn't believe they said it to them. And then what they said after that took such boldness. They then looked him straight in the eyes and they said, Salvation is found in no other name under all of heaven by which men must be saved. This John, this Peter, they were ordinary people. They grew up in this area. They were unschooled. Everybody knew that. But not that day. No, that day. They were extraordinary. And everybody knew it was because they had been with Christ. Man, I want to be with Christ. I want that in my life. The religious leaders still had a problem on their hands. They still had a problem. What were they going to do with this situation at hand? So they, they pontificated with one another. They, they, they strategized, and they're like, what should we do? And they knew that they had no legal grounds on which to keep these men in jail. They knew they had no grounds because everybody had seen it. What? Throw them in jail for doing kindness to a crippled man? The whole of Jerusalem had seen the miracle. It was verified. So they did what they only knew what to do. They used their hot breath to give a vain warning. And they said, we do not want you to speak of that name again in this city. Now most people probably with such an authoritative statement would just tuck their tail and they would run. But not Peter, not John. They simply looked at him and said, you judge for yourself whether it is right for us to obey God or man. But for us, we must speak what we have seen and what we have heard. What boldness. What it meant was that we're not going to shut up. We will continue to proclaim the need, name of Jesus Christ. They dismissed them, and Peter and John, they went and told the church what had happened. I wanted you to feel what it was like in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. What had happened after the birth of this brand new church? It should not be surprising that right after the birth of this brand new church, there was this thing called opposition that came into play. It always happens, doesn't it? It happened then, and it still happens to us today. Opposition will always come against the kingdom of God. Wherever God is at work, there will be opposition to it. 
And so we're here we have this brand new church. We saw them in Acts chapter 2, all the elements of worship and service and community and evangelism, and they're excited. And the enemy tries to squash that excitement by bringing opposition. But what we see is a church that stands united. See, they had an, they had an, an opportunity to run, they could have done like their forefathers did. When opposition came, they would just run, tuck tail and run. They could have said, God, okay, ease us from our pain. We beg of, beg of you. We are tired of the opposition. They could have done all that stuff, but they didn't. And what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 4 today is we're going to look at the church. We're going to put them under the microscope, and we're going to ask ourselves, how is it that they had not only intimacy, but community. Let's not just let this be a word that's on a poster. Let's understand it from the, the, the biblical mandate and the biblical example in the book of Acts. What was community? And if we can understand what community was back then, then we can start to apply it to ourselves at Mission View within the body of Christ. And so we're going to be taking a look at Acts 4, verses 23 to 35, if you turn in your Bibles, and we're going to use this as a study guide to understand how to stand together. Our goal today is to understand community. And we're going to see four elements that they're going to have. We're going to see prayer, we're going to see unity, we're going to see their labor and their sacrifice. So let's start off with the idea of prayer. I call it earth-shaking prayer because that's exactly what happened at that time. Take a look at this in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when, in verse 24, and when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said... Now, the report came above of the persecution of what happened. And so what did they do? They lifted their voices together. And this is what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, that place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I want you to notice what happens in this passage. Notice upon hearing the report that the church of persecution, that the church instinctively goes to prayer. 
Sometimes our first response is not prayer. Our first response is to complain to somebody else. It's to write a note on Facebook. It is to tweet out our, 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 our problems. And that's not the first response of a believer. The first response of the believer is to go to God in prayer. And it says that they lifted their voices together. It wasn't just an individual prayer meeting. This was a group of people. Now notice what they prayed. Or we'll get to that in a minute. Now I want you to think about this for a second. The response that they have here is different than before. Think of how it was before the cross, before the resurrection, before Pentecost. How were the disciples at that point when opposition came? When opposition came, they were scattered, they were divided, they were in denial. But now when opposition came after the resurrection, after Pentecost, they were united, they were together, and they were boldly proclaiming. So why was it that they did this? What was the difference in them? I will tell you, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, for the very first time, now they have the Holy Spirit living within them. Do you realize that this is the bond of community that we have? The Holy Spirit uniting every single one of us? Do you realize when you gave your life to Christ, He sealed you with the Holy Spirit as a kind of an engagement ring until the day in which He comes to get you? So you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It is an immediate bond that we have. Have you ever been on vacation and met a brother or sister in the Lord and automatically there's like this bond? Why is that? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit bonding the two of you together. It is the bond that is here. Have you ever been at a place where you are in such deep pain and anguish that you don't even know what to pray or how to pray it, and yet all of a sudden you sense that God understands your heart? Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is praying for you. We're told this in Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Friends, this is the deep bond and the work of the Holy Spirit that creates the community. We need to keep that in mind. Now look at the content of the prayer. The first thing they pray for is this. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now why does he start with that? Why do they start with talking about the sovereign God who put all creation into place? I believe this was a perspective prayer. God, the very one who put the universe into place, that put the sun who created the earth, to put the stars into place, the very one that has the power to do all of that, Lord, we know you can handle our problems. That's perspective. But then they immediately go into praying Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 was a Davidic, was a, Messi- uh, uh, song, a psalm about the Messiah. It was a messianic psalm. And it was a, actually a parallel. It was about the time that David was to be a, pow- a crowned king, but there was opposition by both 
Gentiles and Jews to him being crowned as the anointed one. And so this was a perspective prayer. They say, they quote that psalm, and then they bring the reality that it was both Jews and Gentiles, Pontius Pilate, uh, they were all a part of this. This is mentioned, Herod, the Gentile nations with the Jewish religious leaders were coming to conspire against God. And this is the perspective. God, you were in control. You knew that's what they were doing. There was nothing that happened that was outside of your control. We trust you. We believe in you. You are the one who orchestrated it all. Now notice the last part of the prayer. This is impressive to me. Notice what they prayed. They prayed this. And now, Lord, look upon the threats their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus Christ see what they prayed for was enablement that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen us with the boldness that we need to proclaim the goodness of God Now, let's be honest. If it was us in the midst of opposition, some of us might be saying, God, at this time, we would ask that you would protect us. We would ask that you would eliminate the threat in our life. They're not doing that. We might even be so bold to say, Lord, bring fire upon our enemies because we want them out of the way. But that's not what these believers did. They asked for divine enablement, not escape. They prayed for divine enablement, not escape. A Christian author, Philip Brooks, once said this. He says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your power, but pray for power equal to to your task. You see, the church knew what their task was. Their, church, their, their task was to boldly share Jesus Christ with a lost world. And instead of retreating from the front lines, as is the tendency when we're persecuted, they ran to the front lines. And they gave us an example of what unity is all about. And then verse 31 says this, NIV says, The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now this passage is greatly misunderstood, and what we need to understand is the idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, there's a sensationalism that some have made and said, hey, when you get you, yeah, you got saved, you got the Holy Spirit, but there needs to be a second blessing of the Holy Spirit where you're going to then be filled. And when you're filled, you speak with tongues, you do this, you do miracles, and you do that. And what he is saying here is none of that. He's not saying that there's a special blessing of the Holy Spirit. He is saying that as a believer, we are to be filled. I stated a week ago that we cannot get more of the Holy Spirit. Doctrinally, we are told that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Sealed. God doesn't give us more of the Holy Spirit. But what can happen is that he has greater control of us. 
We're instructed in Ephesians that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the passage says, do not get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, another way of saying you're going out of control, but we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote that, and the reason he did that is he gave a contrast. One way that we can go is to be under the control of some foreign substance like wine. And he says, when you're drunk, you are out of control. That's not what you are to be. Instead, you are to be, in a sense, under the control of the Holy Spirit. So you say, how do I become filled with the Holy Spirit? How did these people become filled with the Holy Spirit? It's through humble submission of ourselves to God and admitting all the sins. Do you realize that sin is what hinders us from being filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4.30 says, do not quench the Holy Spirit of God. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 that, we are not to, that we're not to quench the Holy Spirit there either. And so we are not to do that. And what is it that quenches the Holy Spirit? What puts out the Holy Spirit's fire? It's when we do our own thing. God says, this is what I want, and we do our own thing. We sin. Sin is what quenches. And what he wants for and what it's a call for is for the church to awaken, for believers to awaken, to submit themselves completely to God so that God can freely fill them and work through them. Dear believer, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is there some sin that you are holding on to, an area of obedience that you are not being obedient to? If there is, then you are quenching the Holy Spirit and you're not walking filled. What God wants, a dynamic church that is showing community, is filled with the Holy Spirit and doing a work for God. And when that happens... There is an unbelievable outpouring of what he will do through the body. I think it's appropriate that we pause. That we pause and pray that God would fill us and would convict us. I've asked Erica if she would lead us in prayer right where she's seated. You can pray right there, Erica. Um, God, we come before you today. Um, not as individuals, not as a town or a state or a nation, but as one church unified, praising your name. Um, we face much adversity today. Um, there are those that want to silence us and want us to conform to your world. And Lord, I pray instead of being silent, that you make us bold, that you make us louder than those who are adversaries. And Lord, instead of conforming, um, we just are set apart so that those that speak against us must wonder why are they set apart, what makes them as they are. And Lord, I pray as, that we, as we go into your world, as we leave these doors, Lord, we be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we be one church unified, praising your name and doing works in your name. Lord, I pray that we never quake in fear of our enemies, for that's what Satan does. And I just pray that we love you, look to you for boldness. And Lord, if there's anything stopping any of us from being filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord, I just pray that we give up ourselves, our worldly selves, our sin, and anything that's holding us back. Um, God, just fill us. Help us to speak your word. Help us to be bold and empowered. 
And Lord, when we're done, when we've accomplished some of these works, help us to always remember that it's not us doing this. Um, help us to never praise ourselves for doing what we're doing. It's you doing this. Um, we're doing this in your word, and we're bold only because of you. Um, and Lord, help us to always pray together, pray for each other, um, help us to come together and be one unified church filled with your spirit and your love, and just help us to speak against those who are against us, and help us just to be one church filled with your spirit. Amen. So earth-shaking prayer was a characteristic of their community. But we also see a supernatural unity. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who, who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now take note of what happens when believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. They live with a united mind. They live with a united heart with each other. And they stop claiming that all their possessions are their possessions, but they use everything they have for the kingdom of God. Now, let's address one issue here. Some would say, okay, should we be selling everything that we have so that we could be unified? Well, that was what happened at this place, but that's not the normative pattern that we see throughout the Scripture. But what is the normative pattern is the mindset. The normal mindset was that everything's God's. See, I believe what we're, we're being asked of is that we would steward our lives for God. Now, I want you to think about this. God's aim here is that every believer manages every aspect of his or her life under the Spirit's control, which will result in us living with open hands. We will live with open hands saying that our house is your house. Our possessions are your possessions. Our relationships are your relationships. All of our finances are your finances. Our time, our bodies, it's all yours, God. We steward our lives to say it's yours. And if we want to understand biblical community, not only do we need to understand the power of prayer, but the, uh, the unity that we should have in stewarding our lives with open hands. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we stewarding our lives for God? Do we really have open hands? There's ways, tangible ways that we can see that in your giving, in your serving, in your attitude towards your possessions. There's tangible ways to measure that. Then we move on and we see the third aspect that they labored boldly for God. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all, all the believers that were there. See, what we see is the spirit-filled individual was doing exactly what Jesus said that they would do. What did Jesus say that they would do? He said, you will receive, Holy, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? You'll be my witnesses. That is going to be your work. 
And notice that they did it as a team. Sometimes when we think about sharing Christ, we think of it as an individual support uh, sport. I think that's somewhat of a Western mindset. We think of it more like golf than we do a team sport. But it's meant as a team. Everywhere we see, we see team, team, team. My friends, what would the work look like if we united together with other believers in our workplace in praying for others in our workplace? What would it look like if we united together with other believers in our neighborhood and prayed for those that were in our neighborhood? What would it look like if we united with other believers in the areas of our recreation in order to win people to Christ? See, this is what he wants, a team effort in regards to the work. And the fourth area was unusual sacrifice. Take a look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I want you to know that this was unusual sacrifice in this day and age because the people back then had the same problem as the people today. We tend, outside of the Spirit of Christ, we tend to think it's all about us and we're not going to be unusually generous. But when the Spirit of God takes over, there's a generosity that takes place in our hearts and church, please know that when we become generous people, we dis demonstrate the heart of God. Do you realize how generous God has been with us? Do you realize how much he has lavished upon us? He has given us so many blessings in our family, in our jobs, in the people that are around us. And when we give just a tiny little bit back to God... How insulting is it when we have that mindset? God wants generosity to flow from us. You say, well, Steve, you don't understand how poor I am. Generosity isn't just in what you put in the offering plate. Generosity is our approach to life. And what God is asking is that we do that. Now, in this situation, they took and they took proceeds, actual monetary proceeds, and laid them at the apostles' feet. I think there was a practical reason for that. It was the apostles' job, the leader's job, to vet the needs in order to be able to make sure that need was met. A few weeks ago, I had invited somebody that I had met out in the community who was very down in, in, in life. And I invited him to come and hear the gospel. Now, unfortunately, when he came, he started asking people for money. Could you help me do this? Can you help me do that? Can you wash my clothes? Can you give me money? Now, some people were generous and helped them out. I want to let you know, please don't ever give money to somebody on Sunday morning. But what you can do is come to the leaders. And the leader's job is to vet that need. What you didn't know is that I had already given, stocked him with food. I have already filled up his gas tank. And when he asked me if I would wash his clothes, I said, not a chance. I'm not going to do that to you. That would belittle you. For me to do what you can do for yourself, I would never do that. But here's what I'll do. I'll sit down with you. And I will help make a plan to get you out of the place that you're in. 
We will cover you in prayer. We will teach you God's word. We'll go over your finances and bring accountability to you to get you to the place where you don't have to beg anymore. Wouldn't that be an awesome thing? I'm willing to do that for you. I haven't seen them since. That's a negative example, but I want you to know there's positive examples. And I'm so thankful over the last two years that we have been able to pay bills for people. We have been able to fill gas tanks. We have been able to put food in people's cupboards after we have vetted the experience. Uh, ex we have vetted them, and we were able to help understand really where they were. And our goal for those people is always, is always to help them spiritually as well as financially get back on their feet. And why were we able to do that? Because those of you that give, it was due to your unusual sacrifice that we were able to do that. So this is the church. Prayer, unity, work, sacrifice. How do we apply that to us? I want us to think about that from mission view, but before we give practical applications, I want you to think about the formula that I gave to you last week. Last week I said passion. We're to have passion. Passion is like putting gas into the tank. It is our love for Jesus that is going to be our passion. But guess what? Passion plus our unity, our supernatural unity, standing together is going to be what propels us forward. So you could fill in the second blank with supernatural unity. Now the third blank we're going to fill out in two weeks from now, and you're going to see the complete formula, but it is what we want to get to in our ministry. We want passion. We want supernatural unity, and you'll see the end result, what it will produce. So how are we doing at Mission View in the work of supernatural unity? Does our unity propel us forward? Is it like gas hitting the pistons that pushes the vehicle forward in our work for God? Well, I believe that we're we're going forward. I definitely believe that. Our elders believe that. Have, are we as forward as we want to be? No, we're not there. I don't know that we'll ever be there. But I want you to know we do see incredible things. Two years ago when we launched this ministry, there was a lot of optimism. I got to be honest with you, in my mind and heart, I thought with, within two years, man, the balconies are going to be filled. We're going to be talking about planting our second and third church plant. And these were all the things that were going through my mind. And God says, Marshall, I'm the church planner, not you. And what we've learned is dependency on the Lord. It's kind of like that toddler that's, that's, that's wobbling and learning to walk, and they're learning to be dependent upon their father. That's what we are. That's a good place to be. Dependency on God is always an awesome place, and our ears are attentive to God. So what is it that we're learning here? Well, in regards to prayer, what we're learning is that we need to pray more. 
We want to pray effectively. You're going to find that in the coming year, we're going to do more of like what we've done in the service today, have other people praying for the body to collectively pray, and we want to bring, raise the temperature of mission view up through prayer. In your community groups, you're going to see that prayer is a greater part of what you are to do on a week-in and week-out basis. We're going to try to have a greater concentration of prayer in our staff times. And there are going to be periodic times where we are going to pray together as a body. Next Sunday night, we're going to have a prayer time at the office from 6 to 7.15. Now, some of you will be in community groups. I want you to go to community groups. You'll pray there. But if you have the time, please come out. We're going to offer these times just so that we can collectively bring our hearts together and lift it up because that was true of the church and it needs to be true of us. Let's make it a priority. The second thing, in regards to unity, the greatest area of unity that we need to grow in is in the area of our community groups. We've learned a lot over the last two years, but the area that we want to grow in in unity is in our community groups. We're going to do it in four ways, or I'm calling it the PACT. The P-A-C-T. We want to pray, which we've already talked about, praying for lost people, praying for each other, praying for our ministry partners, praying that God awaken us. But then we're going to assess. We're going to assess the Sunday morning message. Before, it was all about the Sunday morning message. Now it will be a slice of the pie. It will only be about a small slice of the pie where we assess. There will be care where we do the one another's. We encourage one another. We help one another. We give testimony to one another. All of these one another's need to take place, and there's creative ways that your leaders will be doing that. But probably the most important addition this year is the training. I feel very, very much in passion along with the elders that our community groups need to be the vehicle by which we make disciples. And so every community group leader is to assess where people are and to be able to train you. And we're instituting something we call the cloud. The cloud is based on Hebrews 12.1, the cloud of witnesses. There are a group of mature believers within our ministry that are going to be on call to be invited to your group. This is how we are going to intermingle the older with the younger. And so, for example, Jim and Rosie Marshall might be invited to your group to give testimony of how to have longevity in life and marriage and happiness. And they're not there as public speakers. They're just sharing their heart. And you will grow to love them whether you like it or not. Uh, you will love them. And there will be people that teach on parenting. There will be people that teach on physical exercise. There will be people that teach on finances that will come in. And it will be the way that the body of Christ comes together. And it will keep it snappy. It will keep it uh, uh, different every single week as your community group leader is going to train you. We want to see this happen. Here's my question. Will you stand united? Will you step up? Will you be a part of a community group? And it's not just unity in community groups. Will you be a part of Ignite? 
parents, we're trying our hardest to help provide an environment for your kids. It doesn't help if your kids don't show up. I know that we're learning a lot, and we don't take lightly your children. We want to assist you. Would you stand with us? Would you help us in making this a ministry that is dynamic? Stand united together. How about in the area of labor? We need to stand united in regards to reaching our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our relatives. That's what we are to do, our core, our circle of responsibility. As a church, we are going to set the example. We're constantly going to be doing things in the community because we want to set the example. As a office staff, this summer we had four, three picnics within our community of all the 1,200 workers that work in the Hoover District. 400 people. People came every time. This, this Wednesday, we're having a roundtable discussion with only with 13 of them. And we're excited about us setting the example. We want to do that, not for show, but we want to do it because that's what we are. We're a mission view. Will you stand? Will you stand united in this mission? We want to sacrifice. My friends, I say this humbly. But 80% of the people are providing for, 80% of, of all the funds are provided by 35% of the people. Now I want that to sink in. 85% of what makes Mission View run is provided by 35% of the people. Now that's better than the national average. Normally 80% of the funds are provided by 20%. We're growing. There's optimism there. But there's a lot of room for us to grow. We need to share the burden of this ministry. Not just in finances, but in our time, in our energy, in our planning, in our leadership. Because that's what makes Mission View work. As a church, we need to share the sacrifice. We're going to have communion right now. And as uh, I'm going to have the band come in place, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about what our 20th anniversary will look like. I was at Mar Maranatha's 20th anniversary. Some of you went there. Maranatha Bible Church is the sending church to our ministry. And as we were there, we saw it swarm with over 2,000 people. We got the knowledge that there was four church plants and one, a fifth one that's being planted next Sunday that we're a part of. They've given over a million dollars in missions. There is so much work that they've done. And then it hit me. Way back at the beginning when I was there with Maranatha, we were a small group of people in a high school just like we are now. And all we did was believe that God would do a miracle. All we did was believe that God would do a miracle. My friends, what will our 20th anniversary look like? I believe we will see churches planted in our community and other communities around the world. I believe we will see a lot of money given to expanding God's kingdom. And some of you will even move from this being your mission field to somewhere in Thailand or somewhere in Bolivia or somewhere that God is leading you. I'm excited. Will you stand together? Let's prepare our hearts for worship.